Welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and this is what happened this week. So the first story is actually coming out of California. It's regarding COVID-19 and child hospitalizations. So the reported number of children hospitalized with COVID-19 in California was, quote, grossly inflated, end quote, potentially leading policymakers and parents to believe kids were at higher risk from the virus than they actually are, according to two new studies. Hospital Pediatrics, a journal of medicine for pediatric care, published two research papers this Wednesday that found child hospitalizations for COVID-19 were overcounted by at least 40% in the state, and researchers believe its likely national numbers were similarly inflated. So the New York Magazine reported commentary from Dr. Monica Gandhi. She's an infectious disease specialist at the University of California, San Francisco, and her colleague, Amy Begg an associate professor of pediatrics, and they explain the study's findings. This is her quote, Dr. Gandhi. Taken together, these studies underscore the importance of clearly distinguishing between children hospitalized with SARS-CoV-2 found on a universal testing versus those hospitalized for COVID-19 disease. They reported hospitalization rates greatly overestimate the true burden of COVID-19 disease in children. Then in an interview, Gandhi told New York Magazine, quote, there is no reason to think these findings would be exclusive to California. This sort of retrospective chart review will likely reveal the same findings across the country, end quote. That's entirely true. We have found that to be true across the country in a lot of cases already in the course of this past year. It's no surprise that it would be true for children as well as it's been true for adults. So the New York Magazine summarized the key findings from the two studies. In the one study conducted at a children's hospital in Northern California, among the 117 pediatric COVID-19 positive patients hospitalized between May 10th of 2020 and February 10th of 2021, so almost a whole year, the authors concluded that 53 of them, or 45%, were unlikely to be caused by SARS-CoV-2. The reasons for hospital admission for these unlikely patients included surgeries, cancer treatment, a psychiatric episode, urologic issues, and various infections such as cellulitis, among other diagnoses. The study also found that 46, or 39.3%, of patients coded as SARS-CoV-2 positive were asymptomatic. In other words, despite patients testing positive for the virus as part of the hospital's universal screening, COVID-19 symptoms were absent. Therefore, it was not the reason for the hospitalization. Any instance where the link between a positive SARS-CoV-2 test and cause of admission was uncertain, the authors of the study erred toward giving a likely categorization. In the second study, at the fifth largest children's hospital in the country, out of 146 records listing patients as positive for SARS-CoV-2, From May 1st, 2020 to September 30th, 2020, so roughly five months, the authors classified 58 or 40 percent as having incidental diagnosis, meaning there was no documentation of COVID-19 symptoms prior to hospitalization. Like the first study, and as has been typical around the nation, this hospital implemented universal testing of inpatients for SARS-CoV-2, an example of incidentally SARS-CoV-2 positive patients are those who came to the hospital because of fractures, 
Patients who may have had COVID-19 symptoms, but who had a clearly documented alternative reason for them, such as a child with abdominal pain and fever found to be related to an abdominal abscess, were also deemed to have incidental diagnosis. The study categorized 68 patients, or 47%, as, quote, potentially symptomatic, end quote, which was defined as when COVID-19 was not the primary reason for admission for these patients, and COVID-19 alone did not directly require hospitalization without the contaminant condition, concomitant condition, excuse me. Examples of these patients were those with acute appendicitis, since that condition includes gastrointestinal symptoms that may also present in COVID-19. So the other thing with this is that you're looking at a state like California. You have roughly 40 million residents in California. I looked it up uh, before doing the show. You have a little under 10 million of those residents who are children, 10 million children in the state of California. And one of the largest hospitals in the entire country only had 146 patients test positive pediatric patients test positive in the course of five months last year? And the other, 117 pediatric patients for the whole, for the whole year from May 10th, 2020 to February 10th, 2021. So you've got, what was nine months? Nine months difference there. So it just goes to show that not only were there very few children in one of the largest states in the country that were admitted with any kind of COVID symptoms or or tested positive for COVID during these time periods, but 40% of those very few numbers were actually COVID-19 patients. They weren't just there because they broke a leg jumping on a trampoline. Mom took them into the ER. They're required to test them. And whoop, the test shows up as being positive for little Johnny who broke his leg jumping on the trampoline. So there are two, in my opinion, important implications of these findings. And the first is that policies that disproportionately affect children, such as school closures or the cancelization of youth sports or summer camps, were implemented after reports greatly overstated the risk of children being hospitalized from COVID-19. By the time we started the school year this past year, most all of this information, all of, not most, all of this information was available. We, we knew within a couple of weeks of this thing hitting the United States that the most vulnerable category were the elderly and those in certain underlying conditions. We knew that within a matter of weeks. And then within a matter of just a few months, we realized that children, school-age children and college-age children, really anybody below the age of 50 or 60, and really even higher than that, were not a high risk for COVID-19. But especially children, statistically zero. Statistically zero. We already knew this, and yet our schools our youth events, summer camps, so much of that was closed down and our children suffered for it, even though we already knew better. 
The other thing, the second impl implication, in my opinion, relates to the Food and Drug Administration's emergency youth authorization for COVID-19 vaccines for children. If the study's findings show that COVID-19 poses a dramatically lower incidence of pediatric hospitalizations than the data has shown thus far, then the need for an emergency authorization of vaccines for kids to protect them from going to the hospital is perhaps less than previously thought. Yeah, for sure it's less than previously thought. Uh, Stefan Baral, who's an infectious disease epidemiologist and physician at Johns Hopkins, told the New York Magazine the study's findings reinforce the importance of going through a meaningful process to understand the risks to children from the vaccines. Of course, the FDA approved on Monday the Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for children ages 12 to 15 under its emergency youth authorization, finding that the vaccine is safe and effective for individuals 12 and older. And then according to NBC, as of today, 600,000 children have now received the COVID-19 vaccine. Children who literally have statistically zero risk from this disease were trotting out to be guinea pigs for this vaccine. It's abominable. You have no idea what the long-term consequences are of this vaccine. None. And unfortunately, you just have to do a little bit of Google research to realize that there have been lots of vaccines and drugs that the FDA has approved that have been administered to children and adults over the decades that had to then be pulled from the market because of horrible either death or horrible long-term side effects. And it just wasn't worth it. It just wasn't worth it. And we have been so lied to about the risk of COVID-19 that the risk from these vaccines seems minor when it's really the other way around, especially for our children. Next story that I want to cover that happened this week is regarding the one and only Andrew Cuomo. If you've been wondering how much money Andrew Cuomo pocketed from his book deal, it was revealed this week that it was $5 million. Yes, the governor who took time in the middle of a pandemic that ravaged his state in part because of his own ineptitude wrote a book titled Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic and made $5 million. In my opinion, that's like a med school student getting halfway done with his final med school exam, taking a break, and writing a tutorial titled How I Aced My Board Exam, and then epically failing said board exam, but still making $5 million selling that book to useless idiots. That's, that's what just happened. It's, it's ridiculous that we would think that somebody who's halfway through or partway through the exam would have any advice to offer. The proof is not even in the pudding yet. And you're going to take the time. What kind of egotistical maniac are you? That's what he is. This is from Brad Palumbo from, the, from Fee. And he said, Conventional thinking once held that while private actors in the free market were motivated by self-interest and profit, government officials were motivated by the public interest. But human nature is human nature, regardless of what field one works in. The great insight of public choice theory in economics is that government officials are self-interested too. This doesn't make them evil, it simply makes them human. 
but it does mean this. We can't entrust large amounts of concentrated power to a select few politicians, or it will inevitably lead to corruption and dysfunction. The sad saga of Andrew Cuomo getting rich while betraying the people of New York is just the latest example of this timeless truth. Again, that's Brad Palumbo writing for the fee or for fee.org. Great um, website if you don't follow them. They have some good stuff that, I mean, I don't agree ever with everything that they write about or that they write, but a lot of good information, especially about economics. So um, the last thing, I wanted to do an update. There were some questions this week. This is bringing it home to South Carolina. And this is the Open Carry with Training Act that governor, our governor signed. And so on May 17th, this past week, uh, Governor Henry McMaster signed the Open Carry with Training Act Formerly, that was the House Bill 3094 into law. And this act has a 90-day implementation delay. So this law does not go in effect until August 16th of 2021. Therefore, current valid concealed weapon permit holders are not authorized to openly carry a handgun in South Carolina until August 16th, 2021. In addition... The Open Carry with Training Act does not change the law that applies to non-CWP holders. Rather, it merely changes the way a CWP holder can carry a handgun in public in South Carolina. The Open Carry with Training Act also does not change where a CWP holder can carry in South Carolina, nor does it change the right of a public or private business or employer to post a sign prohibiting or allowing the carrying of a concealable weapon by a valid CWP holder. So the relevant dates here are May 17th of this year through August 16th. There's no change to South Carolina carry laws. On or after August 16th of 2021, valid CWP holders can carry handguns openly or concealed in accordance with South Carolina law. So that's just kind of a little bit of clarification Regarding the Open Carry with Training Act that was signed into law this week, uh, I saw a lot of questions about it, and people were wondering how that was all going to work out, and I, f- I thought that w- there needed to be some clarification. Excited about that. I'm in full support of of that. Uh, I'd love to have constitutional carry in South Carolina. Hopefully, we'll get to that soon enough. But just wanted to give an update on that before I get into kind of my last story. And there's a reason that I want to talk about this, and we're going to get to that, but I'll update everybody on what the facts of the case, of the situation are, and then we'll discuss it some more. Because I typically don't care (laughs) what movie stars and music people and, you know, are entertainment icons, I guess, and entertainment personalities, what they do. I I don't care what they do. They're for the most part, a bunch of degenerates. And it's, you know, the fact that they would embrace a lot of the insanity that's out there does not surprise me one whit. It's why I don't, I'm very glad I grew up in a home that did not revere in any way or idolize in any way a lot of these folks because they're, the the things that they espouse and support changes rapidly. And with the wafting of the wind, it seems like. 
And this week was just another case of that. I, I will say the whole thing, and I haven't talked about this today, um, but the Chrissy Teigen stuff going on and her getting dropped by Macy's and Target. And there was another one. I can't remember what the other business was. They're dropping her as a sponsor is one of the best things. I love these stories where the left eats their own. I mean, it's always going to happen because you can never be woke enough for the woke mob. And Chrissy Teigen has been a leader in the woke mob, in the cancel culture. She's been just the one of the number one champions of it. And I've long said that you're never woke enough for it and that it will come and get you in the rear end eventually. And this week it came for Chrissy Teigen and boy, have I been cheering on the sidelines because that's exactly what's going to happen because there are no standards. There is no plumb line by which the woke mob and the cancel culture operates. And so it is a cavernous beast that has an endless appetite. And eventually, it will come for its own. And this week, it came for one of their leaders. And it was Chrissy Teigen. And it was well-deserved, in my opinion. But that situation aside... This is regarding Demi Lovato. So Demi Lovato's a pop singer. She's an actress. She announced in a video on Tuesday this past week to her 55 million followers that she now seeks to be referred to as non-binary and use the pronouns they, them. In her video, in her Twitter video, or wherever she put it out on social media, she said, living in the fourth dimension means existing consciously in both time and space. But for me, it means having conversations that transcend the typical discourse. I want to take this moment to share something very personal with you. Over the last year, past year and a half, I've been doing some healing and self-reflective work. And through this work, I've had the revelation that I identify as non-binary. With that said, I'll officially be changing my pronouns to they, them. I feel that this best represents the fluidity I feel in my gender expression and allows me to feel most authentic and true to the person I both know I am and still am discovering. Upon the announcement, CBS News ran with the headline, Demi Lovato announces they are non-binary and changing their pronouns, putting forth the notion that a person can identify as or even be multiple people. Glamour Magazine likewise did a victory lap upon hearing the artist's declaration, touting her words as powerful. And according to USA Today, Lovato's coming out video was similarly empowering, end quote. We will be talking more about all of this as time goes by, because it is one of the main battles in the culture war facing my generation. And if you have not begun to educate yourself, you must needs do so quickly and have a firm understanding of what the scriptures teach on transgenderism and what would the Bible, how would the Bible have us respond to what's going on with the gender dysphoria? I look, I was in uh, a store this week, Ross, and there was, um, a, a worker cashier who's checking me out and had the, a mask on. And of course we use our masks to, for multiple reasons. And one of those is to promote our ideology. And on this 
person's mask was my pronouns are they them. And of course, looking at this person, I honestly, my first gut instinct was that it was a girl, but it could have been a boy. I had no idea because of the dress, the hair, multiple things that disguised what their actual gender is. And see, this behavior by Demi Lovato, when she comes out and does this kind of thing, what it does is it affirms for these young people who are confused that this is a great thing. This is what we need to be doing. And of course, a lot of this, and I don't have time to talk about it today, but it goes back to this, us raising our children to idolize these folks and to look to these folks for wisdom and for guidance. And boy, oh boy, we have made such a massive mistake doing that. And I am so thankful for parents who said, no, we go to God's word. That's what our plumb line is. That's where the truth is. And we hold everything else up to it. And we determine what does the Bible say about this? Not Demi Lovato, you know, not Robert Downey Jr., not my favorite singer, not, you know, not any of these, not, not the bass pro fishermen out there that my son greatly admires or Steve Irwin or whoever. Doesn't matter what they have to say. What matters is what does the Lord say in his word? And so, because we dropped the ball there, (laughs) our children, they're looking to somebody. They're looking for answers from somebody. That's the way God designed us. And when we don't guide our children to his word, they're going to find somebody else's word. And they're looking 55 million followers on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, whatever platform it is of their choice, but millions and millions of followers who hear these words and it continues to confuse them. According to the British Journal of Psychiatry, the Journal of Mental Science, over 70% of those who suffer from gender dysphoria also have other psychological conditions and or have suffered from childhood abuse, substance abuse, or trauma. As a result, they are diagnosed as gender dysphoric and do not receive real help. The symptom of their root issue is addressed, but not the real cause, not the actual root. These men, women, and children deserve better than this. We cannot stand by and allow our desire to affirm these individuals, be kind to the, because that's that's what our culture says. Oh, just be loving and kind. Affirm them, whatever their truth is. But, and, and it's almost like, in Christian circles, it's almost like our God is kindness and, and being, and seeming loving, but because we have totally warped what that word love someone means it's totally misapplied here loving someone sometimes means dude you need to not drive and drink at the same time dude you should put down the drugs it's going to destroy your life now is is it is it kind or does it feel good or does it you know does it seem loving in the moment they're going to tell you no 
but it is the loving thing to do. Because wasting all your money and your time and destroying your family because of a love for drugs and, and, and telling somebody that that, that is the right and loving thing to do. Because it's the truth. And we forget often that along with speaking in a loving way, we have to also speak the truth. We have to be speaking the truth in love. So we've allowed our desire to affirm these individuals to pave the way to further hurt, in my opinion. Should we, should we not want those traumatized by abuse or suffering from psychological conditions to receive counseling instead of these individuals concealing their pain behind a wig and fancy makeup? Simply affirming gender dysphoria is the same as affirming an alcoholic by driving them to the local brewery. It might help them hide their pain, but it will not help them heal. And while it might feel good to affirm gender fluidity, it does not do good for our children nor for the men and women suffering either psychologically or physically from childhood abuse, substance abuse, trauma, or other psychological conditions. Offering only affirmative therapy is indeed more harmful than helpful, and we, culturally, especially as Christians, can do better. Now, the thing about all of this that, to me, is incredibly important is because here in South Carolina, and this is bringing it to the city of Columbia, uh, the city council, some things that started happening this week, I want to bring attention to them and highlight them. And I want to read a letter from a listener who was very concerned about this. And she wrote this letter and sent it to the city of Columbia city council and the mayor and is planning to send this to other representatives and senators here in South Carolina because it's imperative for them to have this information in their pockets. And it's imperative for you to have this information. She did a phenomenal job writing this up and pulling it all together and getting all this data together. And I greatly appreciate her sending it to me. I, I greatly appreciate her passion for the subject because it's I feel an equal burden for it. And of course, it's in, encroaching its way into my state and into the city of Columbia. Now, it was, the, it was not even really brought up at their council meeting this week. And so she, thankfully, we've kind of got a little bit of a reprieve from this happening. But basically, let me set the groundwork here. There's an ordinance number uh, 202121. It's conversion therapy for minors prohibited. And over the past few years, there's been a push in mental health circles to use an, quote, affirmative, end quote, therapeutic model for children and young people who are questioning their gender identity and or suffer from gender dysphoria. The affirmative, affirmative model is a linear approach that shuts out a neutral, exploratory, and conventional therapeutic approach whose aim is to neither affirm nor deny a young person's sense of self. The push to use an affirmative model only has ostracized professionals and parents from the decision-making process of what is best for the children and young people under their care. If the city of Columbia passes or had passed ordinance number 2021-21, it will make it illegal to consider the role of developmental, family, 
and mental health issues in the origin or contribution to a minor's gender dysphoria. As worded, the proposed ordinance is de facto pushing for an affirmative-only model of therapy which will have devastating consequences for young people in the city. Not only this, and, and it's not really addressed in this letter, but it pretty much, it it annihilates any ability for there to be any kind of Christian approach or biblical approach to gender dysphoria. It would not allow churches, uh, church counselors, any of those folks who are trying to work with these families, that it would uh, basically prohibit them from being able to mentor, counsel these minors and their families. But this, that, uh, that side of it, is not is not addressed in this letter that I received. So here's here's a, going back to the letter. The term conversion therapy has been used politically to pursue affirmative only therapy for gender questioning young people. Using the term conversion therapy in the context of gender dysphoria is inaccurate and doesn't allow for the nuance that is mental health disorder requires. Ethical and developmentally appropriate therapy should not be confused with conversion therapy. There are likely no licensed professional counselors who treat children and young people using coercive tactics to force a change in gender identity. We understand and agree that abusive and coercive tactics have no place in healthcare. However, the city of Columbia is casting a broad umbrella with this ordinance thus making it illegal to pursue any other kinds of therapies, including compassionate, supportive, and exploratory therapies for gender-questioning young people. Not all gender-questioning children are truly transgender. In children and adolescents, gender dysphoria can have multiple causes, often found in complex developmental and family contexts. By the way, all of this has, uh, all of the links are in this document. And even if you're not in South Carolina and not having to deal with this, specifically uh, the city of Columbia, this is all very good information and is pertinent for our legislators to have in their pocket. Because like I said, it's, all of this is well-researched. There's lots of links in here, lots of data points, and they need to have that information in their pocket. You and I need to have that information in our pockets. So it's... If you would like this information, any of this data, please reach out to me. Uh, I've, I've been given permission to pass this along. And of course, it's going to be sent out to our South Carolina legislators here soon as well. There are multiple studies that indicate that the majority, and here's, here, here's the number, 61 to 98 percent majority 61 to 98 percent of children who struggle with gender-related issues will identify with their biological sex before reaching mature adulthood, either spontaneously or with the help of supportive therapy. By banning other humane approaches in favor of an affirmative-only model of therapies, the city is pushing children down a path of rushed, permanent, irreversible medicalization as the only means of helping to manage their gender dysphoria. Licensed professional counselors who want to do what is right for young people may prefer to first consider non-invasive treatments. That's a no-brainer. And yet, as a matter of fact, that should be what 
where every doctor stands on every issue, medical issue that or a patient that comes into their office. Let's let's try to go with the least invasive treatments possible first. That's common sense. That's not rocket science. You don't have to be Einstein to figure that out. Medicalization brings risky, irreversible interventions, dangerous side effects, and the potential for sterilization. The evidence is poor for the affirmative model. Very poor. Traditionally, gender dysphoria was found in two groups, older middle-aged men and a very small percentage of children. Today, the, go- the cohort of children suffering with gender dysphoria is new and different. There are thousands of adolescent girls and boys who are experiencing this phenomenon without any prior indication in childhood that they were uncomfortable in their sex. Some therapists believe that social contagion is a factor in why clusters of teenagers are developing gender dysphoria, which is why I think it's dangerous for us to put such a premium on the words of people like Demi Lovato, who continue to perpetuate, in my opinion, this social contagion, because I do believe that social contagion is a factor in some of these teenagers' lives. Many of these young people have a combination of the following factors, social anxiety, neurodivergence, ASD, ADHD, and giftedness, particularly boys. A high percentage of these children have pre-existing comorbidities. Some are adopted or have experienced trauma in their lives. Psychological approaches that investigate this sudden onset are more appropriate than affirmative therapies and a pathway to medicalization. Again, Lots of links with that, lots of studies, lots of data that goes to back everything else, uh, everything up that I've said thus far. It would be irresponsible and unethical for a mental health provider to ignore all of the above-mentioned conditions and factors and simply affirm the feelings of the child or teenager without dealing with the underlying issues that may be causing the gender dysphoric feelings. One of the areas that the city must look at as they make this decision are the increasing number of young adults experiencing regret over transitioning to the opposite gender. These so-called detransitioners are experiencing great suffering because of the irreversible damage done to their bodies. They are loudly expressing that they were pushed and encouraged down an affirming path that medicalized them and, in some cases, surgically removed healthy body parts. Kira Bell, a 23-year-old woman in the United Kingdom, successfully sued and won a ruling against the Tavingstock Clinic for having given her cross-sex hormones and performing a mastectomy when she was 16 years old. There are 19,000 detransitioners in Dtrans Reddit, many of whom are telling similar stories. These concerns have prompted several European countries such as the UK, Sweden, and Finland to stop the medicalization of children under 16. Sweden has now banned all medical interventions on children under 18. The UK is reviewing its approach to medical care for gender dysphoric minors. This followed the high court ruling asserting that puberty blockers are experimental and that young people suffering from gender dysphoria cannot give informed consent. The most dangerous and catastrophic results of an affirmative therapeutic model is that it can only lead to the medicalization of children and teenagers, possibly with irreversible results. I have multiple 
links to studies about the damage that cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers cause people. You, we need to all be looking at the scientific evidence before making this decision. Our legislators especially, us as believers especially, we need to know what is going on. And we need to look at the scientific evidence. So much of it that I've already talked about and extracted from this letter. Our legislators should study this issue in great depth by following the scientific research and uncontroverted evidence. It is simply not true that children with gender dysphoria will commit suicide if not allowed to transition. A lot of these kids use that as some sort of blackmail with their parents. That if you don't let me transition, if you don't let me, if you don't affirm this identity, then I, you know, I'm going to kill myself. They use that kind of language. I have personal friends who have children who were coached in that kind of language by peers in college and high school. Multiple cases of this, where their peers in those places coached them and said, if you just tell your parents, if they don't affirm, if they don't encourage you and support you, that you're going to kill yourself. And it doesn't sound exactly like that, but that's how, that's how it's done. And suddenly your child is coming to you and telling you this kind of thing. But it's simply not true. There's, I have, there's a study that debunks the origin of that theory. That's the one size does not fit all in support of psychotherapy for gender dysphoria, Roberto D'Angelo, and others. In fact, there are some experts who propose that putting children and teenagers on the affirmative model in its straight path of medicalization is indeed conversion therapy. We are asking that you allow the experts, namely mental health professionals with knowledge of child and adolescent development and family dynamics to do their jobs in the way they deem most appropriate. And according to my friend who wrote this letter, we suspect that many therapists afraid of this ordinance will simply turn away gender dysphoric people from assess accessing the help that they desperately need. The city of Columbia and other states or cities that are deciding to embrace this kind of thing may find itself in the position of having young adults who regret this decision seeking legal address from the city for having given them no choice but to transition before they were mature enough to make such a lifelong decision for themselves. Thank you for your time. Sincerely, Murray. So well done. Again, long list of resources here that I would like to pass on to as many people as possible because I think it's imperative. And the example that I talked about here at the beginning of all of this regarding Demi Lovato shows why it's imperative for us as parents to have a grasp of what is going on behind the scenes of all of this. Because it's coming to a teenager near you, and it may be the teenager in your home. It may be one of the little faces staring back at you at the dinner table. It may be their little face. It may be their little heart that gets confused, that gets influenced by peers or the entertainment industry. And I don't have time to go into all of that and what social contagion means and, and how that influences young people. What are the other things that are influencing young girls because there's such a huge number of young teenage girls that are identifying as transgender unlike any other time in history where it's typically been middle-aged men and young children but it's primarily men. But now we're seeing increasing numbers of women, of girls, teenage girls. Multiple reasons for that. We'll talk about it on a different show. 
but you need to have this information in your pocket. You need to be thinking through all of this. This right here was just the science of it all. We'll do more. We, we touched on a little bit earlier on a, a, a bit of a biblical family approach to it, but we have to, we'll dive into that a little bit more later on in a different show. Today, just the science side of it. If you'd like this information, you can email me at info at com, and I will send it right to you. Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannamillershow.com.